I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My castaway this week is Miranda Carter, whose books include Anthony Blunt, His Lives, and The Three Emperors on George V, Kaiser Wilhelm II, and Tsar Nicholas II. She wrote recently in the LRB about Desert Island Discs, the world's longest-running interview show. Hello, Miranda, and, and thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for giving me that introduction. Um, so, uh, before we get to your first record, as it oh. were, uh, maybe you could... <laughs> Not really. Maybe you could talk us through the, the origins of the show. Yes. As, as you say, it's the world's longest interview show, but it didn't actually start out as an interview show. It started out very much as a music show. And it was the creation of a man called Roy Plumley, who also became its uh, longest running presenter from its inception in uh, about 1941, 1942 until 1985 when he died. And he was a freelance radio producer and presenter and had been rather desperately bombarding the BBC radio music department with with ideas for formats. And in fact, some of the earlier ideas are really fantastic. There was one called uh, I Know What I Hate, which is you choose six or eight records that you really, really, really dislike. Um, And another one was he'd had an idea about fat people called this too, too corpulent flesh. And both of them were turned down because they were regarded as, you know, slightly too um, (laughs) negative. Although, of course, you think forward 40 years and Room 101 and all those fat programmes. Actually, he was obviously clearly very ahead of his time. Anyway, they were turned down. But then he it was just towards the end of the Blitz. And he had digs in Bushy and nobody had enough coal. So everybody went to bed at about seven o'clock in the evening. And he just put on his pyjamas to get into bed. And he had this brilliant idea. And he immediately wrote, typed it out on the typewriter and sent it the next day to his producer at at, um, BBC Radio. And it, it was, you know... Eight records. I think he started out with 10 records. You would choose your favourite records and why you like them. And, you know, it was going to start with things, people like musicians and opera stars and comedians. And they absolutely lapped it up. You know, they said, yes, yes, let's do it right now. So it was very, very quickly picked up and it went out on forces radio. This is a weird thing that happens during the war with um, with BBC Radio. Just before the war, all commercial radio stations were were closed down, I'm assuming, because they thought they might be sort of putting out propaganda or something. But places like radio stations like Radio Luxembourg already existed and they were shut down for the war. The um, sort of baby version of TV, BBC TV, also was closed down. So all you have are two radio stations broadcasting to the entire nation. The home service, which is news and slightly, you know, and it's rather sort of boring and stiff. And then Forces Radio, which is allegedly for the forces, but actually, you know, everybody's listening to because it's got the comedy and the, you know, enormous amounts of piano music when it first started because they just didn't have any content. So they're desperate for content. And in he pings and they say, uh, would you like to present it? 
Uh, and the rest is sort of history, although it's a little bit tangled and up and down. But that's when it started, I think, ni- early 1942. They moved from 10 records to six records. Uh, the music takes up much more time and the chat is sort of fitted around the edges. And it's often, oh, it's scripted as well, which makes it incredibly stiff a lot of the time. But, it's, but so it's about, so it was, it was not an interview show, as you say, it was a music programme. In a way, yeah. a sort of for, the, for a lazy presenter, he doesn't even have to pick the records. It's, you get other people on to pick the records and he just... Oh, totally. Uh, sits back and then he asks a few questions. And he starts off with, he was a failed actor, Plumley. You know, he really would have liked to have been in the theatre. And you can always tell if he has a theatre guest on, he'd get really enthusiastic. And... Early on, he, he's very keen on comedians. So the first guest was a guy called Vic Oliver, who was a, an Austrian comedian who had moved to Britain and did a lot of sort of music jokes. And uh, But the thing that nobody is not mentioned during the show is that he was married to Churchill's daughter and Churchill absolutely hated him and thought he was kind of terribly low rent. So there's nothing about, you know, your, your, your marriage... Uh, which I think at the time was probably slightly falling apart. Uh, But Oliver was, as I say, a comedian. So the whole thing is sort of excruciatingly scripted. And it's all, uh, you know, it's all, this is a photograph of me. Don't you think it's it's great to Plumley? And Plumley says, you know, did they have photography in the 18th century? (laughs) And uh, it's all like that. And then a few weeks later, he's got Arthur Askey, who is another uh, famous wartime comedian. In fact, Askey was on for four times over... I think the only person who's been on four times apart from ASCII is David Attenborough because Plumlee just loved doing this sort of terrible 1940s banter with him and they thought they were very, very funny. I mean, it's kind of sweet, but it's also sort of, oh, no. And compared to that, would it, as it is now, apart from the theme music, it's almost unrecognisable because, I mean, the, the most recent guest was the Sooth model, Kate Moss. She's on the weekend in the most... I mean, the most read story on the Guardian and Observer website for a while on Sunday morning was we had a headline about her talking about her cocaine use, and obviously the tabloids all picked up as well in a way that Desert Island Disc doesn't often make the headlines. But and the article went into other things she'd said about heroin chic and uh, and about Johnny Depp, but the music wasn't mentioned at all. And actually, her choices were quite disappointing. It's sort of the Rolling Stones and Van Morrison and George Harrison, David Bowie. It's sort of yeah. sort of the, the cooler end of dad rock. But still, dad rock. Yeah. <laughs> but and also, you only have almost I don't know. Have I didn't, it's also only thirty seconds or a minute of what, of the music at all. Yeah, it's. I think now the the ratio is something like it's forty five minutes now, and I think you know it was like eleven minutes of music and twenty one minutes, twenty five minutes of talk now. And so over that period, clearly, what you know, very there was this very slow evolution from chat from from music to chat. And in fact, one of the things that was tremendously hindering, of course, of chat was that Plumlee went on writing scripts until 1955. And but did he, he write script? Did he write his interviewee's side of the script yes. as well? Yes. So what he'd do is he'd take them out for lunch, and the men were taken to the Garrick Club, and the ladies were taken to the Landstand because, of course, the Garrick didn't accept women, and they'd have a kind of multi-bottle lunch, and at once or twice the interviewee the castaway was so drunk they had to come back and do it the next day it's quite fun trying to work out who that might have been and they chat and then he'd go away for half an hour and write the script and he very much prided himself on being able to do a sort of pastiche of what his castaway sounds like complete nonsense you only get uh, actual recordings from 1951 before that there are transcripts which I've read some of and 
the first recording you can get on the BBC website is from 1951 and it's Margaret Lockwood who was this rather marvellous, glamorous film, English film star who used to act with James Mason uh, in these rather torrid period dramas and her most famous role was The Wicked Lady. And she, uh, I mean, she sounds so pedestrian. It sounds like um, one of those um, news, Pathé newsreel uh, things where, you know, she's sort of set up and she sort of talks. There's one where she introduces her favourite song, the Eaton Boat Song. And, you know, she talks about the delightful scene on the on the Thames at Henley that reminds her of marvellous pre-war dreams when, you know, ladies wore white and men wore boaters. And it's just, you know, oh, God, really? For a whole 30 minutes? How efficient would you be at looking after yourself? Do you mean cooking? Well, I mean cooking, yes, but lighting a fire first. Oh, I'd be completely useless at both. Oh, dear. Could you build a hut to live in? <laughs> Not a hope. I was drummed out of the brownies in my first fortnight. <laughs> I'm afraid I wouldn't make old bones on a desert island. It would be a short life and a miserable one. Oh, I'm worried about you. <laughs> well, let's hear about this music that you've chosen. What's your first record? The Eaton Boating Song. Yes, why? Oh, it's always been a favourite of mine. It always conjures up for me a very pleasant English scene. It, and then, in fact, in Plumley's memoirs, he talks about how it was so marvellous in 1955 when he no longer had to script the programmes because the, the programme could, could finally become the thing it ought to be, which was a, an exploration of character. But, of course, Plumley was actually incapable of exploring character. I mean, uh, he was terrible at asking questions. He always asked the same questions pretty much in the same order for the, his entire time. Hel uh, you know, helming the program, and well, and it's a nearly how many one thousand seven hundred and eighty six episodes. That's right. Say in the that's piece. right. So these same questions asked over and over again. And he would never. I mean, he. I feel it's very clear that he's somebody who's actively in flight from revelation. You know, he can't bear the thought that anybody's going to say anything that's going to embarrass him or or them. So there are these episodes where. You know, someone quite unlikely says it's like uh, there's the Margaret Thatcher episode, which is kind of interesting in that neither of them talk about politics enough. And she apparently was the only person who ever actually invited herself on. <laughs> and uh, anyway, they hadn't done they'd actually not done any politicians for decades because Jeremy Thorpe came on in the in the late 1960s and made quite a stir. And everybody thought he was rather good, but they were accused of having politicised the programme. So they then didn't have really they had very few politicians until the 80s. Anyway, she comes on and doesn't talk about politics, talks about sort of being a housewife and raising her children, <laughs> stuff like that. And then um, there's one point, you know, and it's really pedestrian. There's one point where she says something like, well, you know, close family are, are very good and very important in the hard times. And Plumley says, yes, uh, many of your ancestors had very interesting jobs. There was one who was an organ master, a, a, a creator of organs. And then, you know, literally we're off in the other direction. And, um, you know, that was very much his his style. Let's keep it very, very low key. Let's not ask anything embarrassing. I mean, obviously it's not, Lauren Laverne is, is not quite like that, but there was a moment with, with Kate Moss at the weekend where she was talking about after her parents got divorced and she, not that she didn't say the hard times, but I think she described it as being a dark time. And the next question was, so what's your next record? So there is, we have slightly <laughs> gone back to those. That, um, where that, it was some, yeah. that is very plumbly. <laughs> and, but we skip, we've skipped ahead a bit because we, yeah, there are the, um, but I do, I, I mean, I vaguely, I'd have been about eight, I guess, when Plumley died. But I do, I do sort of remember it 
I think I remember, and the idea that who is going to present Desert Island Discs now? This there was this sort of sort of moment of national, yeah, moment of national crisis. Yes, it was true. Was it going to die? Was it going to die, or was it was it going to continue? And of course, in fact, what happened was Michael Parkinson took uh, took it over, which was kind of surprising because Michael Parkinson had been this sort of massive TV chat shows uh, show host who'd sort of interviewed everybody on, you know, on the screen. It seemed like a much sort of smaller job. And he takes over and actually he's sort of regarded as a disaster. You know, he was seen as sort of too too northern and too loud and too aggressive. And and in fact, that there were people at the BBC who accused him of filling the show with Yorkshiremen, which actually wasn't true at all. But I think actually I listened to quite a few of his and there, I remember at the time, sort of, I must have been, I don't know, in my late teens or early 20s and thinking you know it wasn't that bad uh well actually thinking you know no they're right and then listening when I was doing this and actually there are a couple of really interesting episodes uh, I mean he was what was the truth was that he completely sort of broke with the Plumlian way you know he just sounded much more engaged the energy level of the program kind of leapt up and he asked much more interesting questions. So you, there is, there's a couple of episodes I really rather liked. Uh, there's some um, Shirley Williams talking about how she screen tested for National Velvet, the part that Elizabeth Taylor got. And um, and there's um, uh, the Maxwell one where he says, I, I will have left the world a slightly better place than I came into it which is obviously not true at all and and there's an episode with Maya Angelou that is rather extraordinary where she describes how she went mute after the man who raped her as a child was murdered and she heard about it and she felt that it was her fault that he had died and you simply cannot imagine Plumley being able to even hear this whereas uh you know, Parkinson talks very sort of quietly and a lot, you know, alongside. But I, what's interesting to me is that he did all the heavy lifting. He got all the flack for the program changing, and then he left after two years, obviously quite sort of embittered. And uh, he, um, Plumley's widow Diana kept going and you know talking to the Daily Mail and saying that she only thought he was barely civilized and you know really shouldn't be doing the show, and he felt you know people weren't appreciative, so he left. And his replacement was a TV journalist called Sue Lawley, who I think is, you know, under Sue Lawley, the programme starts to re- reach its sort of apotheosis. She took it very, very seriously without, you know, while sort of maintaining the fiction that it was this sort of comfy old shoe show that she wasn't going to change anything about. But she 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 worked very, very hard to kind of prepare for her interviews uh, sort of with absolute laser focus. The interview of hers that I listened to preparing for this, because I thought I'd look up to see if Anthony Blunt had ever been on. And of course, he never was. But um, but if you search for Anthony Blunt and Desert Island Discs, what you come up with is is Brian Sewell, sort of the, the art critic who had been Blunt's pupil and was for a while his friend and then very much wasn't his friend anymore. And he talked a bit about how if only Blunt had taken his advice, it would all have been fine, which is... Kind of... <laughs> Complete nonsense. But, um, you know, it's interesting. Sewell, Sewell was sort of made to be a, a, a media personality. You know, he sprung fully formed in 1979 from Blunt's disgrace. He he wrote this letter to the Times and then in which he said that, you know, it was all nonsense. I mean, got everything wrong. Talked about a fourth man who was completely wrong about. But 
you know, from then on, the media absolutely loved him. And, you know, he had all these other foibles, like he clearly preferred dogs to people and he hated all art before, after sort of 1840. And, you know, he was deeply opinionated. So, of course, he made a very, very good show, I imagine. I haven't listened to that one. Yeah, no, I mean, it is very good. But also, but Lawley, one of the things you notice about it is her technique. She's straight in with challenging his opinions and his reactionary positions and yeah. his sexism. And, and she's sort of out of the gate she sort of says why why don't you know you don't even go and look at any of this art you don't even you'll just dismiss it without looking at it and she's you know it's it's really impressive her well she was a rottweiler and i think she got quite a lot of flat because she was a woman but actually she um you know she she did not shy away from any of the difficult questions uh so there's a there are some thrilling ones actually you know there's one with enoch she the other thing she did was she got in um politicians properly for the first time and so there's suddenly a kind of and and sort of politicized people so there's suddenly a run of Enoch Powell, Eric Hobsbawm, of course he wrote for the paper, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, Stuart Hall, uh, you know uh, you know all sorts of sort of interesting interesting people um, and she she really goes for them so with Enoch Powell she lets him sort of ramble on about the rivers of blood speech and then she says you know and then lets him sort of poodle on about you know how he wasn't really racist and you know it's all about his you know higher understanding of classics and things and she says but you know obviously what you meant in this speech was that you thought that too many immigrants were going to you know the blood streets were going to run red with blood you know and he says no I didn't really mean that at all then she quotes you know word for word something he'd said before she'd done her homework straight back at him and he has no comeback and it's it's rather a thrilling moment but uh, you know there are other times when you just think so, for example, with Tony Blair, uh, she again, she goes right in and she says, you know, people say or not. This is six months before the, the 1997 election. And she says, you know, people say you aren't really a, a, a Labourite. You know, absolutely right in there, you know. And then she says, and how do you feel about the fact that women who are polled about you say that they think you're too smarmy and they don't like your hair? And you can feel him going, Whoa! and um, there's a there's an entry in um Alistair Campbell's diaries because he came along to listen and he talks about how he sort of listened to it going worse and worse and then afterwards he has to sort of get his own back by telling Sue Lawley that she missed a terrible tremendous opportunity and it was a shame she she messed it up so badly <laughs> but actually it was a sort of thrilling episode also he uh, I have to say one thing uh, Blair Ch- you know it's always a temptation of of politicians to to make themselves out to be somebody they aren't you know it's a sort of fun I always think there's a sort of fundamental mismatch between politician real personality and politician what they have to present and I think that was what she was sort of getting at and in fact he did his book choice is absolutely execrable it's Ivanhoe which everybody knows is the absolutely most boring book in the world you know I have tried to read it but there was a tv series that was both going to go on about sort of two months later and I was always sure he was tipped off about that that's why he chose it you know he thought he was about to be a sort of big tv event but it is classic it's called classic third way isn't it because it's sort of it's 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 a tv show it's uh it's It's heritage as it were theoretically a good it's heritage so it's it's classic and yet accessible it's sort of it's a sort of a classic choice which ends up being totally dismal because it's neither one nor the other absolutely and then Sulawli Obviously, she didn't do it for anything like the 40 years that Plumley did. Did she, was she pushed out or did she feel she'd had enough? Why did she? I think, no, no, no. She absolutely felt she'd had enough. And for example, 
I know that these days she has no interest in doing any more broadcasting. She just decided that's it. I want to do something else now. But she did it from about 1987-88. No, yes, 1987-88 until I think 2004-2006, at which point they got in Kirsty Young, who, for my money, is the dream uh, Desert Island Disc interview. I think she was absolutely brilliant. She was remarkable because... Uh, you know, whereas Sue Lawley had been the kind of interrogator, uh, she was the sort of psychotherapist. She was fantastically good at keeping it very calm. And of course, she's got this marvellous voice. It's very low and it has a Scottish accent for everyone who outside Scotland uh, feels it sort of classless and puts it puts them at their ease. And she sort of always said, often sounded like she had a slight smile in her voice, but also there was something slightly, not exactly haughty, but slightly sort of aloof that made her sort of sound like one of the popular girls. And so she starts asking questions. And the thing that she's brilliant about is knowing where to ask the kind of the extra question, the, the question that just sort of prods somebody to kind of think a bit more about themselves. And she was never really, she was never aggressive, but she just got so much out of people. She was a really good listener, I think. And so you have, you know, some fascinating episodes where people, uh, actually people started crying during Lawley's period, but there's a lot of tears with Young as well. But she's. Are, she, they, are they different sorts of tears? Is it, is it worth sort of? I, I, mean, I, don't, I think. I think. I think it's all supposed to be, you know, tears as you think about your past. But I don't think she. I don't think Lawley actually drove people to weeping because she was so abrasive. No, she. I mean, she and Young. The whole. The whole project was really just to draw as much out of your interview as possible by all using all sorts of sort of surreptitious means. This is what I find so fascinating about the format. Its age, kind of uh, its its grandness made people feel that if they were invited on, there was this obligation to sort of talk honestly. And it, it's always done in a kind of small, dark studio. So there's only two of you. So it feels quite intimate. Um, and Lawley in particular felt that the music moment was was the point at which, you know, she'd never say where, which bit of the music she'd play and she'd look at them very, very intensely because she's looking for emotional reactions, you know, best of all tears, but, you know, people sort of thinking about, you know, remembering. And then she can come in afterwards and ask the kind of killer question, or not necessarily the killer question, but the sort of question that kind of really sort of produces a, an emotional reaction. And that's what she wanted. And I think Kirsty Young did, did something sort of similar with this tremendous sort of calmness and the sense of intimacy and this sense of kind of a mixture of of sort of friendliness but also slight distance and then these these brilliant moments where she's very good at sort of picking up on what somebody says and then sort of prodding them to go further and presumably that in the intimacy of the radio studio and the, just two people talking to him was one of the reasons that parkinson i mean having come from tv where he's interviewing people in a brightly lit studio in front of a big audience and and the musical interludes i don't know if they were on parkinson but the tv chat show you have the live music being played and and yeah. several guests at once and that yeah. format is sort of the opposite to them yeah it's true. I mean, maybe he was too big. Yeah, he might have been too big for it. But the other thing he did, in fact, the thing he insisted on was actually playing the music during the programme because it was another one of sort of Plumley's distances. He didn't. They didn't even play the music to the castaway while they were being interviewed. It would be popped in after. And that was the thing that uh, Parkinson insisted on. You have to play the music to the, to the castaway. I mean, it's kind of extraordinary. And the music now, it's sort of it's shifted from it's not your, I mean, it, 
it's sort of people's favourite records, but it's also the records which tell the story of their lives. It's, life. The music has become much more functional, I think. it's all. It, the music is very much second place now. It's about, uh, as you say, it's how it sort of illustrates the life or, you know, what you're interested in or, or, or how it might illuminate character. Um, it's certainly not, you know, music for its own sake. It's it's definitely takes a sort of back seat. What we what we want is sort of revelation. We want to you know we want to hear them cry. You know we want to hear them kind of admit how deeply they felt miserable they felt when they lost their mother or their dog or their whatever. And the interesting thing is we were talking a little bit about Lauren Laverne, who, I mean the other the, her two predecessors, three predecessors all had a background in journalism, and she's much more you know out of music and music presenting. She was never a professional interviewer, and I think, you know, it does show in that she just doesn't doesn't ask the questions in the same way that her two predecessors did, and so you do get much more of a, you know, the, the castaways' own account of themselves. But even despite that, I think because of the the sort of press of the show and the expectation, people are often much more willing to talk about themselves and reveal things about themselves on Desert Island this than they would elsewhere it's sort of part of the the contract which is quite interesting this is the LRB podcast if you enjoy listening to it you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books to subscribe from just one pound per issue go to lrb.me forward slash listen that's lrb.me forward slash listen or click on the link below And that sense of it having the sense that it's always been there, it's 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 been running for so long, you know, certainly longer than than both of our lifetimes. So this idea that yeah. it's just it's there in the background is. I mean, I remember, you know, it would be my mother would have Radio Four on all the time, and you know, there's I don't just the theme tune would come on, and that that would be it. So if you if you were to, as it were. The story of your life through Desert Island Disney. I mean, do you remember oh, the first time? No. no, not the whole thing. But do you do you remember? Do you remember the first time you heard it, or was it just always there in the in the background of of your life in that same way? Do you know, I absolutely remember the first time I was aware of it. It's actually, I would say, it's almost. I mean, this is really weird, isn't this? It's pretty much my first sort of memory of actually having thoughts. You know, all the memories before that are sort of oh look a spider, and. I have a very clear memory of this. And in fact, I've even worked out what the day was. It's very, very kind of weird. But I have this memory of I'm sitting in the back of my parents' car and I'm about five. And it turns out I was five. It's in the dark and we're driving back from somewhere in the country to London. And Desert Island Discs come on, comes on. And I already have an idea of what it's sort of about. But I also think it's the most boring thing in the world. It's, you know, two middle-aged men yakking onto each other about really boring things. So I sort of... Off, I think sitting in the back of all being so bored because the journey's so long and Desert Island is so boring. And onto the radio comes the ride of the Valkyries and it's utterly thrilling. And I just think, oh, what is this? And um, and I, I know that it, this programme is about people choosing their favourite music. And I remember, I have this memory and maybe it's a fake memory, but this is how I remember it, thinking, this is fantastic. And when I have to choose my eight records, this is going to be one of them. And um, I actually 
During my research, I thought, I'll find out how often Ride of the Valkyries turns up in this period when I think I remember it. And so I laboriously went through and looked up all these episodes. And finally, I found one, 6th of December, uh, 1969. I was five. And it is a bloke called Jeffrey Baisley, who was described as a, a radio executive. And... Um, he, you can't hear it, you know, until 1985, quite a lot of them aren't available. And I'm assuming it was so boring. They just didn't put it online and nobody knows who he is. But anyway, that, I think, is my first Desert Island Disc memory. And it went on, Ride of Valkyries went on being the record that I'd actually have to have first for many years until Apocalypse Now came out in about 1979-80. And I, I saw it and I thought, oh, no, I can't have that anymore. Because, of course, you know, they're napalming Vietnam and, you know, and to Ride of the Valkyries. And you just can't choose that anymore. And then, but I, I, I sort of abandoned the attempt to come up with with um, with records because I, there's nothing I hate more than having to kind of narrow anything down. But there were some kind of terrible things that I did that that people um, on the show clearly do. And one of them was, you know, the cool record. So all my friends were talking about. I was about ten. Everybody talked about, you know, you're my first first record I remember is is uh, album I remember is Revolver by the details. I'd never, I didn't know Revolver at all, but I would nod and say, yes, Revolver. So I'd think, oh gosh, I'd have to have Revolver or something on Revolver as my second record. Is it Yellow Submarine or Eleanor Rigby? I mean, the fact that I am so uncool. Uh, but actually the first record I'd bought and remembered was some Wombling Free by Mike Batt. And I knew that that was so uncool. You definitely couldn't have that. So, you know, it was all like that after. I think that's the sort of choices that lots of Desert Island Disc castaways make, you know. Which which um, classical music record shall I have? Well, I saw that Bono chose the the um, the overture to La Traviata. Kind of Bono's got to have a bit of Verdi, and you think, okay, yeah, yeah, in, yeah. the influence of Verdi on you too is hard is hard to see. But that, I mean, I suppose in a way, you sort of respect to Kate Moss for actually just going for the boring, predictable records that everyone loves because maybe I'd that's definitely what... go for Dad Rock now. Yeah. So, well, the other problem is that any eight records you're stuck in a desert island for the rest of your life. You're going to come to hate whatever eight records you take. So, in a way, it would be awful, total disaster to take your eight favorite records because you'd come to hate them and that would be really sad so maybe the, the thing is that I completely agree with you I completely agree with you I think it's the worst idea in the world you definitely hate them and in fact apparently the thing that everybody says the utter cliche is that everybody says I can't choose and everybody comes with sort of 16 records that can't choose and then puts one in the last last minute and then regrets it and is absolutely tortured by their choices and you know lots of people have come on twice or three times and they always choose completely different records because of course we've all got sick of them so it's a terrible terrible idea it's basically hell on a desert island with the records you used to love and you now hate I mean, the other thing is that people got, when did they introduce the other things that you could take a book, but everyone chose the Bible or Shakespeare, so you got them automatically, and then you got another one on top of that. When was that, when was that introduced? Well, interestingly, that's 1951. One of the odd things was that actually um, Desert Islanders was cancelled immediately after war, about 1946, uh, because they closed down Forces Radio and reinvented it sort of as the... Uh, the light program and they and there was a producer who clearly didn't like the show and just got rid of it and then then the music department just kept sort of saying I think we should bring it back it was a frightfully successful show and they go on and on and on about it and finally in 1951 five years later they brought it back with Plumley. so there was this five-year hiatus that nobody really talks about and at that point he brings in the books, uh, Shakespeare in the Bible and you can choose a book and then about a few couple of years later they bring in the luxury 
And I think the first luxury was chosen by an actress called Sally Ann Howe, who was later famous for being in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And this is the sort of 50s. And she chooses garlic because, of course, at the time you still got you still got rationing and and you can't get garlic. So I thought that was rather fabulous, that, anyway. I mean, I know these stories that have grown up about it. I mean, you talk about one in the the piece where supposedly Plumley was embarrassed because he thought Brigitte Bardot said she wanted a penis and she was actually saying happiness with a French accent. And then that's completely untrue because she was never on the show. Yeah, complete. She was never on the show. But there are a couple of, of sort of fantastic earlier moments when she, he went to interview Marlene Dietrich. She, he was, she was on in the West End. She wouldn't come to the studio he had to go to her so he interviews in her in her room and basically she spends the whole time saying no incredibly scornfully so he asks her these very gentle questions she says no 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 apart from loneliness is there anything in the situation of a desert island that you'd be particularly frightened of no 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 i'm frightened of nothing have you a religious faith that would help you well I don't think so because I think I'm too little that anything great religious would bother with me. What would you be happiest to have got away from? Nothing. And then there's this awful moment, brilliant moment, where he says, well, of course, you are a film star in Germany and you're in this film. And she goes, no, 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 no. And basically completely denies that she was in about six films before The Blue Angel because she's she's taken about eight years off her, her age. And she absolutely flatly denies that she was ever in any of these films. And he's very sort of shyly, but you know, sort of agrees, you know, decides not to sort of challenge her. I mean, it's hilarious. But he, he's like a kind of dressed down boy. And there's another one you know, many years later, around 1980, where Otto Preminger, the um, uh, the film director, comes on and he's clearly tried to promote his latest movie. And he sort of berates Plumley the whole way through and talks about how he's bald and how can this bald man, you know, ask him anything. And he's clearly it's sort of comedy. But you can imagine the listeners being a bit kind of, what? What's going on? Uh, but he sort of tried to create a bit of a stir. And indeed, I think it did get in the papers. That's very deliberate. That's that question of promoting... The promotion question, because yeah. it is one of most interview shows, you know, Graham Norton on the TV or whatever, that people are on it because they've they've they've, they've got a new album out. They've got a, they've got something to push. They've got something to sell. And Desert Island yeah. Discs isn't like that, is it? You're not invited on because you, your new perfume line has come out. Well, it definitely, definitely didn't used to be like that. I think it's slightly more like that than it used to be because you do find people coming on because they've got it turns out they have an autobiography even if it isn't mentioned in the program so I think there is more slightly sort of quiet sort of pushing and uh, you know than they used to be and maybe that's the only way they can get people on that you know I don't know but I did like the fact that it really didn't seem to be anchored in any of that for a very very long time you know these people just popped up I mean I think the bottom line is just that the roster of of people is just absolutely extraordinary you know um it's everybody from you know it's Do- there's Donald Sutherland and there, you know and and Dustin Hoffman and there's Elizabeth Schwartzkopf and there's you know some comedian who had a tremendous nervous breakdown and they're all really often pretty fascinating certainly after the sort of 80s yeah it's just uh absolutely 
astonishing. And he, and the other great thing about is that even when people don't know, they're revealing themselves. This is the thing I find really interesting. They are, you know, often like that uh, um, Blair uh, interview that actually he sounds fantastically uncomfortable all the way through. And that's sort of telling you something about it. You know, I think the process of just listening to a voice is fantastically exposing and people often don't realise how exposing that is. There's another Sue Lawley of, of Hugh Grant and it was two months before he was actually picked up in in L.A. for um, he was just, you know, discovered with a, a prostitute in a car. And it was all very embarrassing and they thought it was going to destroy his career. Of course, it didn't. But it's a, what's very interesting, I think, about the show that I, I listen to is he's he sounds fantastically uncomfortable about his fame and and where he is. And everything is sort of in all the music choices in inverted commons. It's sort of Teddy Bear's Picnic and the Flopsy Bunnies and things like that. And you just and and at the same time, he knows he shouldn't be feeling angry. He should be grateful for his enormous success. But actually, he really minds that people just think of him as sort of fluffy haired, you know, romantic lead Hugh Grant. Uh, and it, it's 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 sort of fascinating, especially in hindsight. You know, there are quite a lot of those. In the, the sheer number of guests, as, as you talked about, that we had an idea that we should you know, look up the LRB contributors who, who've been on it and put a list with links to them on the blog, which we did with a, a small number of them. But I started going through the, the two archives simultaneously of Desert Island Discs and the LRB, and I'd got to about October 1980, so you know, a year a year into the run of the LRB, and already this list of people. And, and it's not it's not the obvious ones. As you say, Eric Hobsbawm was, but people who you'd... I mean, Hilary Mantel never has, which is slightly surprising. Um, Alan Bennett's been on twice, but the... I mean, I, around nineteen eighty-one, eighty-two, I just had to stop because I thought this list is already it's just too many, too long. Yeah. There's too many people on it. Um, yeah, so I suppose that then they, these are these, you know, these. I was listening to um, Kirsty Young's interview with George Michael over the weekend as well, which is yeah. really fantastic. And that was he, and that yeah. was some years after he'd been, you know, sort of had these outed embarrassing and outed and all this. And yeah. he was talking about that and. It's brilliant, actually. Just a completely brilliant interview, and he. Well, he was quite honest about it, but unwilling to talk about it. And she is, you know, she's very, very, very good at drawing people out. And there's a fantastic one with Julie Birchall, uh, which I think absolutely shows what a skilled interviewer Young was, because yeah, uh, Birchall sort of turns up. And is fantastically abrasive. And she's sort of pushing this line of her personality about how she absolutely loves confrontation. That's all she's interested in. And she's always been a bitch. And that's fantastic. And um, and she also brings in all this stuff about how she supports Israel. And she, I couldn't help feeling that actually what she really wanted was to kind of sidetrack the whole, whole interview by sort of getting young to kind of tangle with her support of Israel. And, you know, she's it's all about sort of waving flags and, you know, how much she loves she'd like to move to Israel and stuff. And Kirsty Young just completely ignores all of that. And what she homes in on is that what she really thinks is that is that Birchill is sort of in flight from pain and emotion. And she sort of knocks away at it, not, not too much on the nose, but quite a lot. And and eventually, Julie Birchill says, you know, no, I just don't want to be a person who feels pain, you know, like that. I've seen my friends being kind of wrecked on the rocks of of pain and emotion and difficult situations, and I, I won't have that. And the subject comes around about the fact that she walked out of these two marriages and basically left two, two small sons. And there's this point where she says, she says, you know, Exactly. You know, no, I, I, I feel no regret about this. Uh, you know, I regret nothing. I'm not the person who has regrets. And um, Young comes in and she says, I didn't use the word regret. I use the word sad. And Julie Birchall sort of screams. It's like she's been she's been sort of caught out. 
it's really really it's a really odd moment and then later right at the end of the show she says that she can't go back to Bristol because she can't bear to hear the accent of her parents who have both died she just she just can't bear to be in Bristol because it's sort of too painful to be reminded of her parents which is an extraordinary thing and it's just it's the whole thing is sort of choreographed over the the course of the show Last question before, uh, what would what luxury would you take to a desert island? Well, obviously, as I've, um, you know, I've spent years thinking about this, I've discarded, you know, hot and cold running champagne and, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, lifetime supply of foie gras for which I'd be, you know, I'd be receiving letters on the desert island for, for eating foie gras. But actually what I realised is these days all I want is a comfy bed. So I'd have a comfy bed because I, I'm a terrible insomniac and I really mind going and staying with people who have hard beds. It makes me cry. So I'd have a, the most comfortable bed ever, plus a couple of pillows. Miranda Carter, thank you very much. You can read Miranda Carter's piece on Desert Island Discs in the 9th of June issue of the LRB. And there's a list of some of the LRB contributors who've appeared on the programme on the LRB blog. Links to those below. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and the music is by Kieran Brunt. <laughs>